This is District Sentinel Radio Live broadcasting out of the Barefoot is Legal studio in Washington, D.C., a.k.a. Pisstown. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. There you are, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us tonight. Here's what we have coming up on the show. First, we have an interview with journalist Kate Aronoff from The Intercept. We talk about the Green New Deal and coping skills with uh, the whole despair around climate change, that whole thing. Yeah, we'll be uh, also reading some poetry later. We'll be reading a few of the first, uh, excuse me, the worst emails that uh, we received this week from PR people. Yeah, being a being a journalist in DC, you get a lot of really awful emails. We'll share some of the best with you, and then worst, best, worst, the best, the best, worst ones, the best, worst ones. Yes, yes. And yes. then uh, at the end of the show, at the very end of the show, someone will get thrown in the garbage can. In fact, uh, the polls are open right now. For the garbage can. It is too close to call in it, Cuyahoga County. It, it really is too close to call. I'm just checking on it right now. Uh, looks like Marco Rubio is leading the way, um, but it's very narrow. Uh, Steve Scalise right behind him. You can Ooh. go right now, patreon.com slash district sentinel and vote for who you think should be thrown uh, in the garbage can. We've got a really good roster uh, this week. You do have to become a subscriber though. You do. Uh, you do have to uh, subscribe on Patreon to become a subscriber or to be able to vote in our garbage can proceedings. But listen, you won't regret it. You won't regret it if you do, because you get access to all sorts of bonus content. We've been doing all sorts of uh, special reports this week for our uh, subscribers over at Patreon. Plus, uh, let's be honest, the way that Patreon works, you can subscribe uh, and then you can unsubscribe before the end of the month and you never have to pay us anything. (laughs) Yeah, which good. sucks, but it, it it is a workaround. Uh, it, but if you just want to test, you know, you you, you may just want to dip your toe uh, into the uh, Sentinel waters, <laughs> and in which case you can do that. There's a loophole, and you can yeah. do that. Also, by the way, if uh, if you can't afford the five bucks right now, we will for our uh, subscribe. We will set. Wait, what was that? You just played an audio thing there on accident. Anyway, if you can't afford the five bucks a month right now uh, to always a tough economy out there in this neoliberal hellscape. Yeah. We have a list of people we blast content out to uh, who, who can't hack it right now. Uh, college students thinking of you. I know I wouldn't have paid five bucks a month when I was in college. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't afford that. So anyway, uh, email us, dcsentinelnews at yahoo.com. Tag us on Twitter. Uh, reach out. We will make sure you get our hot content piped directly to your dome. Yeah, that's how we do it around here. So all of that is coming up on the show, the interview, the garbage can, uh, the the poetry, the haiku, all of that coming up. But first, I mean, we're ostensibly newsmen. Some some may call us poets. <laughs> uh, but this, some. Yeah, this is primarily a news show. Uh, so let's go over some of the headlines of the week. 
Is there a little jingle? That no, I'm there's supposed no to wait jingle. For? No, no there's no jingle. I wasn't sure if there was going to be a jingle or not. So there's no jingle. Maybe maybe District Sentinel Radio Live Two will bring back some little bumpers. But right now we're just gonna we're just gonna go. That's cool. Let's do it unplugged. So last night President Trump gave a primetime address, making a very dishonest case for his bullshit wall. Unfortunately, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi volunteered to personally respond for Democrats. Here's some of the dreck that they came up with. The fact is, on the very first day of this Congress, House Democrats passed Senate Republican legislation to reopen government and fund smart, effective border security solutions. Make no mistake, Democrats and the president both want stronger border security. The symbol of America should be the Statue of Liberty, not a 30-foot wall. So our suggestion is a simple one. Mr. President, reopen the government and we can work to resolve our differences over border security. So uh, who, who framed that shot there and was going for the shining murder hallway vibe? <laughs> That's, uh, I want to know uh, if, if, if you happen to watch it. It's... Uh, it looks like they want to play with Danny forever and ever and ever. They want to reach across Come the play. aisle Come uh, play, to Danny Donnie. forever Come and play. ever. Come play with us, Danny. Come reach across the aisle forever and ever and ever. Uh, by the way, you got to love how Schumer pivoted from the Statue of Liberty to border security. Yeah. <laughs> Give me your tired, your poor... Your huddled masses yearning for border security. More border security. Schumer did pay lip service to, quote, legal immigrants and refugees, but made no mention of asylum seekers. The distinction is important because many migrants from failing Central American states claim asylum in the U.S., and Republicans want to criminalize asylum seeking as a deterrent to immigration. Judging by the response from Pelosi and Schumer, they agree with this callous nativism, or maybe they just don't care. As hop, as excuse me, as hypothesized in our latest zine, Democrats spearheaded the push to legalize asylum seeking during the Cold War. Excuse me, simply as a soft power tool. People were fleeing various communist countries in the late seventies, and liberals wanted to change federal law to make it easier for the U.S. to accept them. Now that Democrats can't use asylum policy to advance their infantile view of capitalism and American exceptionalism, they have no use for asylum seekers. Hence the bleeding about border security, border security and legal immigration while Trump stokes the flames of white nationalism. It's extremely good. Trump uh, met with top Democrats today, uh, hoping that both of their speeches last night uh, might have broken the impasse. It obviously didn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, Trump reportedly walked out of the meeting with Chuck and Nancy this afternoon. And then he immediately took to Twitter where he had this to say, just left a meeting with Chuck and Nancy, a total waste of time. I asked what is going to happen in 30 days if I quickly open things up. Are you going to approve border security, which includes a wall or steel barrier? Nancy said no. So I said bye-bye. Uh, now, uh, in case that isn't at all... Sir, we actually, we do respect border security, sir. <laughs> Let me show you how much we respect border security. We'll give you one and a half billion dollars for your wall. Listen, uh, in case it's not completely obvious yet who is to blame for all this, the AP fact check uh, is here to save you, tweeting out this. An early contender for worst tweet of the year, 
AP fact check. Democrats put the blame for the shutdown on Trump, but it takes two to tango. Trump's demand for $5.7 billion for his border wall is one reason for the budget impasse. The Democrats' refusal to approve the money is another. <laughs> wow. I, I have a feeling that had Obama been in office even, let alone can't imagine what they'd say if if a similar sort of situation arose under Bernie, but they would be like, well, actually, according to the Constitution, all spending is supposed to originate in the House Ways and Means Committee, but... <laughs> I don't know. They they they're worried about access. They want to they they want to kiss the ass of our of our dumb diarrhea baby president. So yeah, can we just they give say the, both sides? Both sides are uh can are, we are just, getting Pinocchios. Can or we whatever. just give the AP the title right now for worst tweet of twenty nineteen? I mean, the tournament's not till March. Uh, we probably can't. There's too many good contenders. Yeah, too many good contenders. I mean, we did have even this tweet. Uh, about walls by baseball crank recently <laughs> that might be worse than the ap fact check i don't know uh let alone uh, not not to forget the uh tweet today the person fantasizing about aoc and jeff Be- bezos marrying <sighs> because jeff bezos is uh and and his wife are, are calling it splitsville or uh the one about giving time of your own life to ruth bader ginsburg <sighs> and then there was uh the uh Beto O'Rourke one, which we oh the uh, the uh, calves the calves one yes we we all remember that one. uh, End it there. All right, some off Twitter news. The Government Accountability Office published a new report about food insecurity on college campuses. The federal watchdog reviewed Department of Education data and found almost two million at-risk students who were potentially eligible for SNAP benefits or food stamps, but did not receive any benefits. In 2016. Why? Because unlike what you hear in conservative media about how easy it is to take advantage of the welfare state, it's actually really freaking difficult and really confusing. And most people just give up before they can find out if they're eligible. And the federal government isn't exactly trying to make it any easier for people to understand. This was from today's GAO report. Quote, Because the SNAP eligibility requirements for college students can be difficult for students and colleges to understand, students may be unaware of or misinformed about their potential eligibility for SNAP. U.S. Department of Agriculture's Food and Nutrition Service has not made information that clearly explains student SNAP eligibility requirements easily easily accessible to students and college officials. And as a result, students experiencing food insecurity may remain unaware that they could be eligible for SNAP. GAO recommended that the department do a better job at making SNAP eligibility requirements easier to understand, more accessible. Of course, that's assuming there will be any funding for SNAP in the next few weeks or months. The White House said earlier this week that absent a new spending bill, the program would run out of money sometime in February. Today, it uh, revised that estimate, claiming the program is viable through February. Not sure about March, though. We're going to have to wait and see on March. With key welfare programs like SNAP under threat and with hundreds of thousands of federal workers missing paychecks, it's looking like President Trump could do some real damage to the economy by shutting down the government over his rapidly filling diaper. Here's another way the Trump shutdown threatens everyone's livelihoods. Key regulatory bodies aren't able to do their job right now. 
Public Citizen released a report today on the impact of the shutdown, noting, quote, According to furloughed workers, many agencies are falling behind and it could take many weeks for them to catch up. More than 75 percent of workers have been furloughed at seven agencies dedicated to protecting consumers and workers, according to federal agency memos. And nearly 50,000 employees have been sent home without pay. That 50,000 includes the workforce at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the Securities and Exchange Commission, both, of course, oversee financial markets. So uh, better hope there's no flash crash soon. Better hope the uh, coked out Wall Street guys manning those giant fucking computers that make all those trades really, really fast and evidently are uh, not causing... Anyway. I'm supremely (laughs) confident in the health of our stock market. Yeah. Also uh, being impacted, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. What could possibly go wrong with those three offline? I don't know. <laughs> the FAA's workforce is also being hampered, and what is certainly great news to people who are afraid of flying. Uh, Another impacted agency worth mentioning is the Food and Drug Administration, which said today that it isn't conducting safety inspections right now. What? So you might want to hold off on buying ground beef or for anything, a little bit. Or going anywhere, doing anything. Think about that for a second. They're not doing safety inspections right now. <clears throat> Third world America. I uh, I I do not have. I have even less confidence in in <sighs> Wendy's right now than, than normal. Uh, finally, today, some newly elected members of Congress gave their first speech on the House floor. One of them was Massachusetts Democrat Ayanna Presley, who basically called the president a liar and then was promptly admonished by the acting Speaker of the House. Uh, watch this clip. Mr. Speaker, I rise today in opposition to the occupant of the White House. Mr. Trump, you took an oath, just as I did five days ago, to protect and defend the Constitution and the American people. Sir, you dishonor that oath. You devalue the life of the immigrant, the worker, and the survivor. I see right through you, and so do the American people. Today I rise as one, and I stand as thousands. Thank you, and I yield back. Members are reminded to refrain from engaging in personalities toward the president. Wait, what? <laughs> what was that about engaging in personalities toward the president? Members are uh, prohibited from doing that? Well, it turns out House rules on what you can say about the president are some of the lamest shit you'll ever read. This is just, it, it, it's really bad. So according uh, to a House rules explainer that I found from the government publishing office, here's some of the rules. One, you cannot use language that can be taken as personally offensive to the president. Rules do not permit the use of language that is personally offensive toward the president. That includes calling him a liar, calling him a hypocrite, or uh, referring to accusations of sexual misconduct. It's almost uh, written exactly for Trump in this case. (laughs) Uh, Also... Even if we were under uh, impeachment proceedings, members must abstain from personally offensive language then as well. Uh, I guess there is one slight silver lining here. These rules don't apply to the president's family. So you can go on the floor of the House and trash the president's family all you want, but you can't say anything mean about the president. Hmm. Just makes you uh, hate Congress even more. So you can go 
on the House floor and reveal state secrets and classified information. You can. You that can. is protected by the speech and debate clause. Yes. However, according to the uh, legislature's own rules, you cannot... Say the president is a liar. Or say the president is a stupid doo-doo dum-dum head. There, there is uh, a few interesting exceptions to what you can say on the floor that I found here. Um, apparently, you are allowed to say things like, the government is oppressive. Hmm. You're allowed to say that unnamed officials are half-baked nitwits. And each of these has an example of when it was like... This obviously happened. Someone said this, and it was ruled by the chair. It was adjudicated, in order. yeah, yeah. Um, you're allowed to call a federal agency communist or socialist. Probably not allowed to call it fascist. Yeah, though. that's what I was getting at. You're also allowed to call the government a labor dictatorship. Um, something tells me that these these rules are tilted one way for people to criticize the government, but I can only hope that those would be accurate descriptions one day. <laughs> I, I think I uh, found a loophole though. I would like to go on the House floor and tell the president to suck on this decorum. <laughs> I think that would be completely allowed. Uh, all right. All right. Enough, uh, enough of the news here. Can you call the president a dictator? The president is a dictator. <laughs> Uh, probably not, but you could call him a communist, I guess, or uh, a, a labor dictator. A labor dictator, you could call him that, but probably not a fascist dictator. The president is a continuing resolution supporter. <laughs> uh, all right. Now for a segment called From the Inbox, where we share with you some of the awful emails sent to us by lobbyists and PR flack. Uh, Sam Knight. Yeah, this one from Monday uh, sent shivers down my spine. What do, what do we got here? From the Center for Education Reform, subject, the Amazon effect on higher ed. Uh, it's a quote from Modern States Executive Director David Vise. What, whatever Modern States is, I don't know. I didn't bother uh, to Google it. It just it sounds like an awful Silicon Valley think tank. Uh, and I deduce that from this quote from Vise quote think about amazon and then think about education amazon hasn't eliminated the need or the desire that people have to shop for all kinds of things they've changed the delivery mechanism dramatically and they've done it by taking massive advantage of a logistic system that's brilliant and by using the internet in ways no one ever imagined <laughs> in that same way courses are going to be delivered differently <laughs> <laughs> it's I, fucking bad i know it's uh, uh well obviously it's it's uh, it's very insidious and uh frightening that people think this and people who uh have any currency within the center for education reform but it also uh reminds me of that old south park cliche the step one steal underwear step two question mark you know a bunch of question marks and step three profit with the with the underwear gnomes so, i uh, i too got some awful mail in the old inbox wait, wait think about amazon and then think about education and put the two together that's basically this email anyway all right uh, i too got bad email it was a fundraising email from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and let me. Oh yeah, was it was it a yeah. fake bill? No, it wasn't this time. Let me just uh, show it to you and read it to you. 
There it is. Uh, Trump went on national television last night and spewed disgusting insults at Democrats. <laughs> he absolutely disrespected Speaker Pelosi. We refuse to let this stand. Uh, we need to step up and protect her agenda at all costs. <laughs> it then uh, includes all uh, sorts of ways you can give money immediately. It says it'll take an overwhelming wave of support, 12,946 Democrats strong, to fight back. Will you chip in before midnight? And you can uh, uh, click a box to donate as much as like $250 immediately. Um, yeah, so when this is what happens when personalities matter a lot more than policy. Uh, this is the kind of shit you get. Imagine if your takeaway watching Trump's speech last night wasn't shit. This guy's a fascist or fuck. A lot more people are going to suffer we're all screwed. Imagine if your takeaway instead was, how dare he disrespect Nancy Pelosi? Nancy Pelosi, more how like dare? Nancy Khaleesi. <laughs> Is that the Game of Thrones person? You nailed it. Nice. <laughs> how fucking dare him? I'm giving $500 to the DCCC right now. This is definitely directed at at people who drink a lot of wine. Yes. Who are like, who, oh, I got to drink my way through the Trump speech and then it's done. And then, you know, they, they, they pick them off. They're like, I know, I know you weren't down with that disrespecting of Nancy Pelosi. And I know you're fucking, you're tilted on your seventh Cabernet. And uh, you're, you're going to donate $250 right now before midnight. It's got to be before midnight. Never before you go to sleep and no. sober up. It's before midnight. You have to do it before midnight. If you don't midnight. do it before midnight... Trump is going to kill Nancy Pelosi. That's why they say the midnight, because they want to get the fucked up people to donate before they sober up. Anyway, <laughs> boom. All right. Exposed yes. by us. This this just, this just doesn't want to make me give money to the DCCC. It wants me to take money from the DCCC. They shouldn't have any money. <laughs> They're clearly wasting it on bullshit like this. All right. What are you talking about? Are, are the agenda of defending the celebrity of Nancy Pelosi at all costs is worthy of every last drop of my blood. Of course. Of course. All right. Um, we're going to get to the interview in just a second. Let's check out the garbage can voting right now. It appears as though... Got to refresh. Yeah, I'm refreshing right now. Marco Rubio still in the lead. Barely. Polls are closing soon. It's not too late. Patreon dot com slash district sentinel subscribe now vote in the garbage can proceedings steve scalise right behind him here this uh this could go in any direction um this week we uh also have reports over on patreon on impeaching trump uh holding people who poisoned flint accountable uh new stuff coming out each day for subscribers so it's not just a vote tonight it's to get all the bonus content we put out on a near Daily basis, all of it available for just five bucks a month. Patreon.com slash District Sentinel. All right. So earlier today, we sat down with journalist and writer Kate Aronoff, who's been covering the latest on the Green New Deal. Here is that interview. Okay, joining us now from Brooklyn, New York, is Kate Aronoff, a journalist and writer who covers climate change and U.S. politics. She's a contributor to The Intercept, and you can find some of her previous work over at In These Times. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks for having me. So uh, by now, most of our listeners already 
or should know what a Green New Deal is at its core. It's a series of policy proposals to reduce carbon emissions down to zero. Uh, But I've seen liberal scolds who would normally support this kind of climate action, but who uh, hate leftists and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez attack these kind of latest iterations of a Green New Deal that are circulating uh, because they include lefty policy proposals like a federal job guarantee. Uh, You've suggested in some of your other writings other initiatives like uh, universal basic income, Medicare for all, uh, free nationwide Wi-Fi that should also be included in a a Green New Deal package. Break down why we need to go beyond traditional energy policy in order to make uh, this Green New Deal work. Sure. So, I mean, the science on climate change, and I don't think it's useful always to talk about science when we talk about climate change, um, but it's pretty clear on this point, right? We have uh, about 12 years, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, to begin uh, radically decarbonizing the Earth's economy. And, and that, you know, of course, involves the U.S. economy as a big part of that. Uh, and any, um, any sort of path toward that uh, involves a really sort of massive transformation in the, way, uh, in, in the ways our economy is run, um, it, in large part because capitalism was built root to branch around fossil fuels. And so it's sort of a, a fact of our economic system that a lot of things run off of coal, oil, and natural gas. And uh, changing that up um, in the process, disposing of the power of one of the most powerful industries the world has ever known, um, will uh, entail a lot of shifts. And um, they're really, you know, are not uh, the toolbox for doing that, for making that kind of transformation um, can't be found only in the world of energy, energy policy. Of course, we need to transform the grid system. Of course, we need to um, electrify processes and economic activities, which are not currently um, on the electric grid. Things like uh, heating systems, for instance, uh, car travel, things like that. Not that we should be um, relying a whole lot on individual cars in the future. Um, But this is sort of just a massive level transformation and um, what a Green New Deal kind of gets at and and why I think this is really the only scale of action that's actually in line with what um, the scientific consensus is actually saying uh, is uh, that, you know, we have done this scale of thing before or something approaching this scale at least and uh the united states has learned to do things it didn't know how to do so part of what i think is useful about that reference back to the new deal is that uh at the beginning of the of the great depression the united states did not have a welfare state um we all of our um sort of relief for the poor as the term went back then um was allocated by uh, churches, by private charities, what have you. And uh, we didn't know how to do the thing that we do now, which is make sure that people don't die because they're poor. I mean, we could be doing a lot more of that. Um, but uh, that, that sort of basic infrastructure was built almost whole cloth out of, out of the Depression and out of the sort of um, demands of social movements and uh, workers um, 
sort of coming together and saying, look, people are dying and uh, we need the state to step in and uh, create solutions. And I think we face a very similar problem today with a different balance of class forces than existed in, in the early 30s, I think. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the state really needs to learn to do a lot of things very quickly if we're going to get out of this mess. And I don't, um, I think there, there's been this fantasy on um, the liberal end and, and sort of um, some parts of the right that are more willing to talk about climate change, that if we just get the prices right, if we just sort of um, make the, uh, the cost of carbon accurate, um, the market will sort itself out. But I don't think we, we really have time to, uh, you know, hope against every shred of evidence that the market will do that. There's also um, <clears throat> the fact that dirty energy uh, industry is tied up with the financial industry. And we've seen activists in D.C., for example, uh, trying to get the city council to divest from Wells Fargo because of its support of the Dakota Access Pipeline. But uh, a second prong to their approach is also D.C. should have a public bank because all of these banks uh, uh, support projects that accelerate climate change and uh, are, are killing the earth. So I just thought I would add to that that maybe uh, public banking is, is, is also something that we need to be thinking about in the context of a, of a new green deal, of a green new deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this this gets back to another question. Um, I mean, it gets back to a lot of important things are, are sort of bound up in the question of public banking. I think um, one of which, which I don't actually think that in particular, um, the, the public bank push is uh, the answer to necessarily, um, is this like question that uh, that comes up a lot of, you know, how do you pay for it? Um and I think sometimes that like public banking gets thrown into that conversation um, in ways that I don't <laughs> I don't know where. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think there there are you know more robust tools that the government has available to it um, than public banks to fund um, sort of mass scale infrastructure projects, for yeah. instance. Um, but I think what public banking really does, importantly, and why I think it's a really important part of the Green New Deal conversation, um, is because there's more wrong with our economy than the fact that it runs off of fossil fuels, right? There are huge numbers of people who banks have systematically discriminated against, have built whole policies around um, discriminating against. And uh, a, a public bank and, and things like postal banking and stuff like that um, are a public option, essentially, for, for banking and financial services, which is a huge sort of oversight and I think makes... Um, you know, even stuff we could imagine sort of in the short term, like putting more, putting solar panels on a house or an apartment complex or something like that, um, that's really hard to finance. And if you don't have access to credit, if you don't have access to, um, to, to you know, things like that, uh, doing that can be really hard. And there's a big barrier uh, among folks who... Um, who can, you know, access renewable energy right now and those who can. Um, and a lot of that comes down to sort of historic inequalities baked into um, our economy and our, and our banking system in particular. Um, 
and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, uh, I mean, public banking, I'm not the expert on it, but, uh, gets, gets into some of those questions, but I think there's a big piece of it, this, which is, um, sort of institutional reform that goes a lot deeper than just questions that directly involve, um, where we get our, our power in particular, but gets into these questions of financing. Um, and, you know, I think the, the push in DC for divestment has been really, um, powerful. It's been really, a um, a, a nice thing to, to, look at as a, a cause for hope in, uh, in the world. Going back to uh, FDR's New Deal, which is obviously par- at least partially uh, an inspiration for the Green New Deal, uh, this is a bit of a galaxy brain take, but it could be argued that the, the New Deal itself saved capitalism and in that way is responsible for where we are today in this capitalism-induced uh global catastrophe. Um, at the time, uh, the New Deal staved off either what, what could have been, um, who, who knows, a full communism revolution or just as likely a fascist revolution here in the U.S. at the time. But given all that, as we embark on trying to do a New Deal, new a new New Deal, a green New Deal. Um, <laughs> a in green this, new New Deal. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Add, just add, add more. Yeah. Uh, As you talked about, there's a lot of the same economic conditions now as there were back then, in addition to this climate catastrophe we're facing. How do we ensure that we aren't just, um, uh, I guess, like duct taping together capitalism to make it last for another hundred years? How do we ensure that we kill off some of these most destructive parts of capitalism that have brought us to this planetary crisis? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think first off, what I would say is that uh, I think the change that a Green New Deal is aiming toward is is much, much bigger um, than any anything even the New Deal accomplished, which was massive. You know, I think the way... Um, I think I'm getting this right, that the way that uh, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez has talked about this is, you know, this is like if you were to imagine the New Deal and the war mobilization and going to the moon, um, you know, that would maybe start to get at what what we need to do. Um, But I think the fact of it is the fact of um, what any sort of transition away from fossil fuels looks like is that you have to go after the fossil fuel industry. I mean, the the science, again, is very clear on this. Um, If we are to avoid a sort of catastrophic future, um, something like 87% of oil needs to be kept in the ground um, by 2050. We need to be, or we need to be using 87% less oil than we currently do. Um, We need to yeah, uh, eliminate coal um, and uh, very very high figures on on the um, amount of natural gas we need to we need to excise out of the energy system and so that is not a future as much as they uh, these companies talk about um, their uh, commitment to greening their operations and uh, you know research into algae or whatever it is that I get ads for whenever I write stories about ExxonMobil and I'm googling them a lot. Um, they they're not comfortable with that. Like they simply will not accept um, a, a future in which their business model does not exist and their business model is in direct contradiction to the survival of human civilization. And so um, I, I think that is this sort of massive 
challenge that needs to occur. And I, I think in part because of just how structured capitalism itself is around the fossil fuel industry, I think any sort of economic system that we get on the other side of that necessarily looks um, very different from what we know today. Whether you can call that capitalism, I don't know. <laughs> whether, whether, you know, you can call a world in which everyone has free energy in which everyone, um, you know, public transit is, is, uh, freely accessible for, uh, basically everyone, um, which everyone is healthcare, you know, whether you can call that capitalism, I, I'm, I'm happy to debate, <laughs> but I think the, the sort of bare facts of it are that, um, a, um, displacing the, the, the most powerful industry in history, um, will, uh, make some, changes in the process to to um, the economy and, and how it's structured and also provisioning uh, massive amounts of energy and, and making the sort of uh, huge investments that we need. I think that really challenges what we think of as the relationship between um, the economy and the state uh, in, in, in ways that I don't think are um, compatible with, with neoliberalism at the very least. And at least as far as the uh, pressing need to eliminate coal is concerned, that's why the uh, economic, uh, the, well, the New Deal components of fighting climate change are so important. And that's why it can't be just like Nancy Pelosi style cap and trade is because some of the uh, some coal country is one of the most economically depressed places uh in the united states and places like southern west virginia and uh and eastern kentucky and stuff so that's i just wanted to say that that's why the uh stress why the new deal stuff uh is so important but let's assume that democrats uh take back congress in and win in 2020 because you were talking about how the uh fossil fuel industry is one of the most powerful industries that ever existed Mm -hmm. There's obviously going to be a, a massive backlash, assuming some kind of Green New Deal uh, legislation is passed mm -hmm. and signed into law. What kind? What kind of reaction uh, do you think we'll see? What What should we worry about? And and are lawsuits in the Supreme Court the only thing we have to worry about? Because I I, I just have in mind uh, instances in history where where leftists take power and try to do trans transformative things and. Uh, you see maybe not illegal, but certainly extra legal uh, activities like capital strikes. And, the, the business well, plot? That was illegal, yes. <laughs> <A> the coup? <laughs> Possible coup. But anyway, uh, I was just wondering uh, what, what sort of reaction uh, should we expect from industry and uh, right-wingers? Oh, I mean, I think it'll be massive. <laughs> like, and I think that happens well before anything gets passed. I mean, if, if, you know, I look at what happened, for instance, in the midterms this last cycle. So um, in Washington state, uh, a, a really sort of impressive coalition of um, environmental and climate justice groups, community organizations, immigrant rights organizations, um, it's just a, a the sort of whole uh, progressive community essentially in, in, in Washington came together with some you know businesses with um, some support from other parts of civil society um, to pass a very modest carbon tax. Um, I think it was uh, twelve or fifteen dollars uh, per ton of, of carbon dioxide. Um, very modest tax itself um, would have funded some sort of green new deal style investments. Um, the the uh, 
oil industry poured $30 million into defeating it. And mind you, this is oil companies who mm. have um, come out publicly in support of, of a carbon tax. Um, BP, um, which has a whole web, web page devoted to um, talk of a carbon tax, put $13 million into defeating this. Um, there was another fight in Colorado where they were looking to pass a sort of common sense um, regulation that would mean that you couldn't frack or drill uh, within 2,500 feet of schools. Um, schools being important in, 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 in large part because um, children are much more vulnerable to the sorts of pollution and chemicals that are used in um, the drilling process. Uh, and they put $40 million into defeating that. They had spent the campaign for that campaign 40 to 1, uh, essentially. I think, I think um, they also said all their opponents uh, or everyone who wanted to limit fracking in Colorado was a, uh, a Putin puppet. <laughs> I think that was some of the if I if I'm not mistaken I think that was some of the the rhetoric they were using because yeah then yeah, Ru then Russian right. natural gas benefits or whatever yeah yeah that sounds right that sounds right um, yeah I mean so I think that pushback is something we haven't really seen yet on a Green New Deal um, and I don't really know why I mean I think it's because they still see it probably as as more theoretical at this point they're not imminently worried about it passing in the way that they were for those ballot initiatives um but uh but yeah i think that's the one thing that you know these companies have virtually unlimited resources and are very very sensitive about anything like their bottom line being affected um so i think that's coming i mean i think there's also these like you know bigger geopolitical questions which we don't uh which we we haven't really um seen yet because there haven't been like major oil producer uh producing countries um to my knowledge that have have done something at this scale at the scale that um a green new deal would scale back fossil fuels i mean i don't i don't know if um you or, or your listeners are familiar with the seminal norwegian tv show occupied um but the <laughs> the plot of that show is that uh uh the, the green party takes power in norway green party looking very different than it does here. Um, <laughs> and they <laughs> immediately call for the prime minister or president, uh, immediately calls for an end to oil production. Um, and uh, the whole plot of the show is that the Russian government and with the support of the EU invades Norway and occupies it so that they start oil production. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I don't know if we'll necessarily see that, but I think that is like, Fossil capital is is again the most entrenched institution in the world, and I don't think we should underestimate. You know, I um, I'd, I'd heard yeah. about that show, and uh, I I like the premise a lot more with the with the EU teaming up with Russia to yes. uh, I, I, yeah. that 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 seems like much more realistic because somewhat the, the way it had been explained to me, I thought it was only Russia occupying uh, Norway, and that it was some sort of. Uh, you know, a uh, fear mongering thing about whatever. Yeah, but no, the EU and Russia teaming up. I, I totally see that. <laughs> yeah. Not purely sort of like Putin, Putin gate, uh, <laughs> right. uh, things like that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that the, the pushback, um, will be enormous. And, and I think that's something to be, um, really prepared for. And I think part of why the green new deal framing to get back to what you mentioned earlier. So, important in that it does sort of inoculate against what have been some of the more like emotionally and economically resonant um, lines that the fossil fuel industry has used in, in the sorts of fights where it's it's 
bottom line is threatened, which is that, you know, uh, you wouldn't want to put these poor coal miners out of work. You wouldn't want to put these poor refinery workers um, out of a job. Um, and what a Green New Deal says pretty brilliantly is um, there's no reason why anyone's life has to get worse, except perhaps if you are an executive of, mul- of a multinational <laughs> fossil fuel company. Um, then your life definitely has to get worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think you get three meals in the Hague, but um, I, I think they'll be, they'll be pretty comfortable, but um, should should certainly be, be tried. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think a Green New Deal reframes the question, right? It's not a matter as, you know, carbon taxes and sort of cap and trade systems are so often phrased as um, the people who are least responsible for this crisis, giving something up, having to pay more um, in any amount. Um, the question is, how do we distribute society's resources more fairly? Um, and, and you know, we have very few people hoarding a lot of wealth, um, and a lot of control over our future, effectively, when we talk about fossil fuels. And so how do we um, change that equation? How do we, you know, make make the economy a bit more fair? Um, and uh, uh, the way that you do that, um, I mean, the way that you get at um, a future in which we're not all, all cooking um, necessarily involves making the economy more fair, necessarily involves... Um, changing up sort of who holds who holds power in it tying this back to uh the news of the day and trump's uh, racist border wall uh, eric erickson of all people had a pretty darn good oh, tweet Lord. last night which uh, i'm not sure if you saw it but basically he argued that if the president declares a national emergency and starts using eminent domain and reprogram dollars to build a wall it is only a matter of time before a progressive president declares climate change a national emergency and uses eminent domain to shutter coal plants uh etc Oh my God! <laughs> uh, your your oh. thoughts on that, uh, Kate? Oh wow, <laughs> Erickson. Uh, put, putting aside, the, I mean, the last part is good. Put put aside the image of a talking ham, which <laughs> is what Eric Erickson is, and focus focus on the content of the. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, oh wow, there's a lot there. Um, I mean, yeah, we should close coal plants for sure um that's that's right um yeah i mean i don't i i think eminent domain has like a specific history in the um climate movement which i think is complicated and that um one of the really big fights around um pipelines has been um the use of eminent domain to essentially like ram pipelines through rural parts of the country um and so I don't, you know, I, I don't know enough about the law surrounding eminent domain to know, um, you know, whether it makes sense in that in that regard. Frankly, um, I, I do think, you know, a proposal that has been um, talked about, which I'm I'm pretty sympathetic to personally, um, is the idea of nationalizing the fossil fuel industry, um, and you know, becoming a the 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 U.S. government becoming a majority stakeholder in. Um, companies whose business model shouldn't exist and then rapidly liquidating them. Um, and you know, how much at this point could it really cost to buy a, a coal company? Yeah. Um, and like they're going bankrupt left and right. Like if we'd, we've probably bailed out some already. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm in a domain aside. I don't, you know, expect Eric Erickson, um, 
I don't know what he meant by that tweet. I'm just confused. Um. Who knows what he means by any tweet uh, when it comes down to it. We, we had Rashida Tlaib on the show about four months ago, uh, seemingly supportive of the idea of nationalizing oil companies and shutting them down. She wouldn't rule it out. Yeah, she wouldn't rule it out. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, Kate, Kate kind of wrapping this all up, um, when I think of a, a Green New Deal or implementing a Green New Deal, to me, that's the easy part, actually, like putting it into effect. The the hard part is, of course, getting it passed, overcoming our uh, broken political system and entrenched uh, fossil fuel special interests to get that passed. The other hard part is, will it? Is it too late? Will it go far enough? Um, you know, scientists come out each year with new projections and they seem to get worse and worse. And scientists are pretty cautious people. So even the more alarmist predictions uh, usually are avoided by scientists, but could be accurate. And assuming all that's true, um, we could implement a Green New Deal and it, 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 we could still not avoid some of the worst effects of climate change, given how long we've waited. I'm curious how... Uh, you, as you write about this issue and cover this issue, uh, handle that possibility or handle the despair in general uh, around this issue? Yeah, I mean, I what I'll say is that I feel more hopeful now in you know almost a decade of following this stuff um, than I have ever, <laughs> really. Um, I, I, I think you know the energy around the Green New Deal. I think is the only time that I've seen a sort of conversation happen at the national level here or almost anywhere um, that I think is really gets at the scale of what we need to do um, to do this. And, you know, there is this question, um, which you, which you raised of, is it enough? Will it be enough? Um, and I, <laughs> I think it's the, the best we got. And that's not, I mean, that's not to say, um, you know, that's not to be sort of nihilistic about it. Um, but I, I think on the one hand, there's never sort of a point at which we should just sort of resign ourselves to a climate change world, right? Like we are already locked in for some level of, of warming. We, we've, we've um, you know, put ourselves on track for about one degree of warming and some change, which, you know, in itself will, will sort of dramatically change our physical environment um, in, in really remarkable ways. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, kind of an inevitability at this point. Um, but there is no point at which um, we can't prevent worse things from happening. I think one of the big and maybe underrated takeaways of the IPCC report is that the difference between 1.5 degrees and two is massive um, in terms of the, the, the type of effects we'll see and the, and the sheer number of people that will be killed. The difference between Two degrees and 2.5 degrees is huge. The difference between 2.5 degrees and three degrees is huge. And so, you know, I don't think, um, I think a complication of talking about this is it's not as if we just sort of like blow past a certain deadline and that's it. Oh, well, guess we'll all burn. Um, you know, we, we sort of always have to be thinking about this. And I think there's not, you know, we don't have the luxury of sort of being able to say, well, you know, we blew it. And so um, we can just give up. And I think what, um, what what the Green New Deal does that's really helpful is it says, um, you know, you, I think this is a, a sort of like maybe internal um, uh, climate, you know, people who, who are sort of deeply following this stuff. But I think what it says is like, 
right. You know, we are going to try as best as we can um, to bring down, you know, to limit warming to 1.52 degrees, um, you know, make every possible effort to go all the way on that. In the process, maybe you'll get Medicare for all, you know, in the process, maybe you'll get uh, a federal job guarantee. In the process, uh, the economy will become dramatically more equal than it is right now. People's lives will improve dramatically. Um, and, you know, those two things cannot be so disaggregated from one another. It's not as if, you know, these are add-ons. It's that, you know, a low-carbon world is a more equal one um, than, than the one we're living in now. And so um, even the sort of process of striving for a Green New Deal, I think, you know, makes people's lives better in the short term, even if, which I, I'm not, um, you think it's too late, even if you think that, you know, we're not, we're not going to sort of um, fix this, as it were, um, which, you know, we're not going to fix climate change, right? Like, it's happening. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think a Green New Deal says, um, you know, even if you are pessimistic about the possibilities of getting the 1.5 or 2 degrees, there are many, many other reasons to do this beyond that. Hmm. Well said. Kate Aronoff, uh, writer, journalist, contributor over at The Intercept. You can find some of her writing over at In These Times. Follow Kate on Twitter at Kate Aronoff. And if you haven't yet, read her piece from last month in The Intercept on what a Green New Deal might actually look like. It uh, helped combat some of my despair uh, over our uh, climate catastrophe reading it. So you should too. Uh, Thanks again for coming on the show, Kate. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Thanks, Kate. And we are back. Thanks again to Kate. And thanks to everybody who uh, is tuning in on the show and uh, participating in the chat. Thanks also to intern Nate, who has arrived to watch the show. Actually, no, he's not watching the show. He's making dinner. He's making dinner. He's making uh, spaghetti. I think he's making it with ketchup because he's a pale weirdo. (laughs) Uh, He's shouting lies. lies. He, He claims he's actually making marinara, but... I haven't been offered a taste, so I can't confirm this. <laughs> anyway, we do, what's going on in the chat room? We have some banter in the chat. We have uh, Carter saying, "I piss on your border and the Statue of Liberty." <laughs> we uh, also have Jeffrey saying, "Nancy and Chuck, your parents whom scold you for coming home smelling like weed," and Tony. <laughs> that, uh, that is. That is dead on. Well, actually, that not not that picture. That's kind of them looking happy. But there were a lot of moments where they looked disappointed. I'll say. And uh, Tony says, "Did SK One get banned on Twitter?" Yes. The answer is yes. SK One did get banned on Twitter. Hmm. Yeah. So, the second time for the second time uh, <laughs> for those keeping score at home. All right. Well. Uh, We've got just the, the real business left in the show now. The real business. We're going to be throwing someone in the garbage can here shortly. But first, I think it's time we pay back to our subscribers out there on the old Patreon. $5 a month. You get a haiku written by the two Sams. 
It's a special segment, a special poetry segment of the show. And uh, why don't you get us started, Sam? Why not? This is for Rob. My son made a treat. Is this a mud pie, I ask? Yeah, he says, it's mud. Thank you, Rob. (laughs) This one goes out to Andrew. Check out the yard guy. Perfectly manicured grass. The lawnmower man. Thank you, Andrew. This is for Nathan. Betting on hockey. Winning money on hockey. Losing on hockey. (laughs) Thank you, Nathan. How you doing tonight? A lot, a lot of action left. This one goes out to David. So you've got some wings. That doesn't mean you can fly. Just ask the ostrich. Thank you, David. This is for T. Lance. Or is it Tlance? I don't know. T. Lance is good. Anyway, this is for Tlance. You know Cass Sunstein, the insufferable lib guy? More like ass Kunstein. <laughs> Thank you, Talance. Finally, this is for Diane. Like that one, intern Nate? <laughs> this goes out to Diane. I placed two gold bricks in each of my shoe lifters, said Ben Shapiro. <laughs> Thank you, Diane. Yes, thank you, Diane. And thank you to all the new subscribers on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash District Sentinel. Also, while we've got you here, buy the dang haiku book. Sam Knight's got it right here. The haiku book. It just came out. We've uh, placed, we've we've got links on on our Twitter and Facebook. You can find them. it makes a great Valentine's Day present, I'd say. Yeah. Valentine's or, Day coming up. Or or just buy it now for uh, next Christmas. It's going to be Christmas eventually yeah. again. and uh, or, or holiday season. Uh, uh, but if you buy it now, it, it's like a present to yourself later because that's one less thing you have to do. You have to stress and worry about at, yeah. the, at the holiday season. Anyway, there are some pretty great drawings in here. I just turned to page 69. I kid, nice. you, I kid you not. And uh, let me read this real quick. A modest idea, steal golf clubs from rich people. That is just step one. And uh, we have this sort of illustrated. I'll just hold it up. Can we see that? Yeah, we can see that. It uh, looks like a guy uh, beating a, a rich guy with a golf club or stealing a golf club. I think yeah, it's yeah. Well, it, it it visualizes stealing this is just vision, step one. This poetic vision <laughs> that we have. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, uh, patreon.com slash district sentinel. You'll get a haiku and maybe your haiku will end up in the next edition of the haiku book, even though this one's not dated. It just came out. Buy them. It's great. Makes a great present. Okay, <laughs> we've reached the time of the show. We got to get the we got to assemble the interns. Nate, uh, gather up the interns for us. Interns, get the can. All right, thank you, Nate. Here they come. Thanks, Nate. Bring it in. Yep, bring it on in. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Uh, oh. Whoa, whoa. Ooh. Whoa, Whoa, that is fucking foul. Uh, I don't know what that is, but it, it looks like it, it. whatever it is, it molded 
a lot. That is really freaking bad. Ooh. Well, looking forward to dumping one of these fuckers in there. All right. You want to go first? Let's do it. Garbage candidate number one, Marco Rubio. Rubio is the author of Senate Republicans' first bill this Congress, legislation that would try to help states prohibit contractors from boycotting Israel. Such state laws have already been declared unconstitutional by the federal judiciary for good reason. They punish people for engaging in free speech. But that isn't deterring little Marco. Because his bill is the legislative equivalent of a meltdown, Rubio tried to tweet through criticism with the middle schooler's understanding of constitutional law. His rage posts included this banger, quote, if boycotting Israel is constitutionally protected, then boycotting companies that boycott Israel is also constitutionally protected. You idiot. <laughs> Not if it's a government doing the boycotting, you, you impossibly person. thick dipshit. We're talking about a guy who writes laws, who doesn't grasp why the state is held to a different standard from individuals. So for that and for being a neocon fuckboy, Marco Rubio is nominated for the garbage to the garbage can. Garbage candidate number two, Steve Scalise. The House Minority Whip is a racist who once described himself as David Duke without the baggage and then suddenly found himself with a lot of baggage. He's nominated this week not for retrograde bigotry, but instead being dumb as hell. Rep. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has suggested uh, in a 60 Minutes interview that top marginal tax rates in the U.S. for individuals making $10 million should be around 70%. Now, even though this is an extremely modest proposal, and I don't mean that in the eat the baby sense, I mean that in it is modest. It should be much, much higher, probably 100%. It also used to be much higher not that long ago, like in the lifetimes of many of the politicians in Congress. Obviously, though, a lot of people flipped out and a lot more people displayed their complete ignorance, lack of understanding of how marginal tax rates work, like Steve Scalise, who tweeted this, quote, Hi, AOC. Or excuse me, he tweeted, let me or let Republican Republicans, let Americans keep more of their hard earned money. Democrats, take away 70 percent of your income and give it to leftist fantasy programs. Nope, not how it works. Not at all. And as uh, Ocasio-Cortez clearly explained in her 60 Minutes interview, since it's a marginal tax rate, it would apply only to the Dollars over $10 million, not someone's entire income. And you'd think that the second most powerful Republican in the House would know that. Maybe he does know that. He probably does know that. And he's just sticking to messaging meant to mislead the public. Maybe he's lying. Either way, it's worthy of a garbage canning. But Scalise put himself over the top after he was educated on our, how marginal tax rates work by AOC on Twitter. He tweeted back at the friend, freshman congresswoman, Quote, hi, AOC, happy to continue this debate on the floor of the People's House, but it's clearly not productive to engage here with some of your radical followers. Hashtag stay classy. He then included a screenshot of uh, some of the responses to uh, AOC's tweet, uh, including one from uh, Randy G-Dub <laughs> saying uh, snipe his ass. <laughs> Randy G-Dub, a <laughs> sentinel mufo. <laughs> Anyways, the guy, <laughs> Scalise, the guy who courts 
white nationalists, white supremacists, and compares himself to David Duke, shouldn't be criticizing anyone for what their followers say. Also, Randy G-Dub is good as hell. (laughs) Uh, So for the ignorance or outright lying, and then the sanctimonious, but my menchies and your, your followers are too mean, and for being a racist, can't forget that one, Steve Scalise, you're nominated for the garbage can. Moving on to garbage candidate number three, Liz Cheney. When Congress opened last week, the House Republicans caucus chair took a typically ill-informed swipe at the left, decrying, quote, the fraud of socialism. Bernie Sanders replied on Twitter, noting that a child of Dick Cheney should probably sit this one out, considering the fraud of the Iraq war. And Cheney responded with this, quote, Yes, at Senator Sanders, son of Eli Sanders, socialism is a fraud. It steals from the people and gives it to the government, crushes human freedom and initiative, and devastates economies. Ask the Venezuelans, BTW, your Dick Cheney history is as defective as your economic policy, American flag emoji, end of quote. So, wow. American flag emoji. There is a lot to unpack there, uh, but let's start with the old-timey anti-Semitism. Son of Eli Sanders? What the fuck? What what other plausible explanation could there be for including son of Eli Sanders other than a fucking anti-Semitic foghorn? Then how about the uh, reduction of socialism to giving power to the government? I guess that means every Blue Lives Matter dipshit is a socialist. Also, Dick Warrantless Wiretap Cheney and his insipid failed daughter, who loves national security state spookery. She's a socialist, too. Then there's a classic cherry-picked Venezuela reference. For some reason, Liz Cheney isn't encouraging people to ask Haitians, Hondurans, or Mexicans about capitalism. Venezuela, Venezuela, finally a vapid defense of her war criminal dad that sums up the mindless hysteria in the build-up to the Iraq war. An American flag emoji. Just keep waving that tattered piece of shit, and it doesn't matter how many people you kill. Anyway... We'd love to chat with Liz Cheney about her father's history at his trial for capital crimes. Until then, we might have to keep her in the only, thi- in the only thing fit to contain a member of the Cheney family, a garbage can. Garbage candidate number four, Joe Biden. And I'm just going to read the official nominating document here. Joe Biden for existing. <laughs> That's why he's nominated for existing. That's why he's nominated, and it was seconded seven times to uh, make the vote, and then he made the final six. So, that's I, to be fair, and yeah, to be completely fair, given his record of building the modern, modern carceral state in the U.S., smearing sexual harassment victims, being creepy every chance he gets around women, that's not all that bad of a reason to throw him in the garbage can. But times are particularly dire now as the competition heats up for the Democratic presidential primary. Biden's name keeps coming up as a potential frontrunner. You see uh, some of the biggest dipshits in the party pushing for Biden when they're not pushing for Beto. Uh, Biden himself reportedly believes that he has the best chance to beat Trump, which is true if it were between him and Hillary Clinton only. (laughs) Throw in pretty much anyone else short of maybe John Delaney and Biden becomes the most beatable. A perennial failure at running for higher office with a lot of legislative baggage and a walking me to controversy. So let's nip this in the bud while we still can. Joe Biden, you're nominated for the garbage can. 
Very much looking forward to, uh, if he does run, very much looking forward to uh, Elizabeth Warren, at least, pinning the bankruptcy bill, uh, hanging it around his neck like an albatross, like the albatross that it should. Definitely. Moving on to garbage candidate number five, Anderson Cooper. Cooper interviewed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Sunday for 60 Minutes, and though he likes to portray himself as one of the smart ones, Anderson came off as a regular Chris Cuomo. Wah, wah. <laughs> First, Anderson uh, pressed AOC about how she would pay for single-payer health care, as if it's a goddamn mission to the core of the earth and not something dozens of other countries have already done through uh, taxation. Then Cooper questioned whether or not the Green D- New Deal was too radical, as if it's not modeled on prior reformist legislation, you know, the regular New Deal. Finally, Anderson gawked at AOC when she pointed out the obvious. Trump is a racist. How can you say that, he asked. I don't know, man. It's not polite to say that dogs like to eat their own shit or that cats like to lick their own assholes, but that's the truth. Trump is a racist. He campaigned on demonizing Mexicans, Muslims, immigrants in general, and black people protesting police violence. He said there were good people among a mob of murderous neo-Nazis. What the fuck more do you need? Anderson Cooper might posture as being being woke, but his brand just fucking melts away when someone like AOC comes around to point out that the U.S. isn't a meritocracy. As noted by many people on Twitter, Cooper is the great-great-great-grandson of a literal robber baron, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and it sure as hell showed the other night. So this week, we are nominating AC to the GC. (laughs) That was a hell of an endorsement right there for the garbage can. (laughs) GC360. All right, finally, garbage candidate number six, PAYGO, or pay-as-you-go. It's a federal law that requires all new spending bills to be paid for. The cost of any new project, be it a new infrastructure project or Medicare for All, would have to be offset by spending cuts elsewhere or tax increases. It's a product of deficit hawks during the Obama administration. Obama himself signed PAYGO into law in 2010. Anyways, it's a stupid law. It's based on a stupid premise that deficit spending is always bad, when in fact, in most cases, it's actually quite good. For progressives to accomplish anything in the future, PAYGO needs to go. Unfortunately, most progressives in Congress just voted to approve PAYGO as a rule last week. But you know what? We'll step it up here and do what they were supposed to do, which is throw PAYGO in the garbage can. Well, that's going to depend on the votes, of course. Okay, so we have Pago, of course, as you yes. just mentioned. We've got Anderson Cooper. Yes, we've got Anderson Cooper. I should uh, I should uh, refresh our memory of their pictures here. <laughs> we've got Anderson Cooper. We've got Joe Biden. That's right. You gonna pull him up there? There he is. Yeah, we've got Liz Cheney. We got Liz. Liz Cheney. I wonder how long her heart is gonna last. By the way. <laughs> Just throwing it Her out there. The actual one or the machine or, or, one that or, they will implant yeah, later. Or, or the three mechanical baboon hearts yeah. that you'll get. We've got uh, S- Steve Scalise. Uh, and we have Marco Rubio. There he is. All right, folks. The votes have been counted. It was a nail biter this week. But... Marco Rubio, you are going in the garbage can. Oh, oh, 
there oh, goes. Oh, there's all your shitty, stupid tweets. You don't know anything about this country, Marco. There, there goes. I'm not saying it, but uh, uh, the the uh, the secret <laughs> family is in there. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I don't Thank know. Thank you. Why would for... we throw Marco Rubio's secret family in the garbage can? They have nothing to do with this. <laughs> If you like what you watched, consider subscribing at patreon.com slash district sentinel for exclusive subscriber only content, newscasts, interviews, reports, live streams, stuff like that. Subscribe to our SoundCloud and, uh, you know, we'll release more free content there. We actually release free content there on the pretty much on the daily basis. And while you're here, hit subscribe on our YouTube channel as well. Follow us on Facebook. Boom, right there. Follow us on Twitter. Thanks to our sponsor, the Congressional Dish Podcast, hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com. Subscribers, we'll see you tomorrow for the Sentinel Hangout, bright and early at 4.20 p.m. We're here in D.C. so that you don't have to be.